Abram and his family have been on quite an adventure. Okay, and by the way, don't let my OU distract you tonight, okay? All right, quite an adventure. And here's how the message is going to go in the next 27 minutes, all right? There's going to be a small conflict, there's going to be a large conflict, and there's going to be a resolution. I love resolution. I like good endings. When I go to a movie, I want to see a good ending. I don't want to be left hanging. I don't want a bad ending. I want a good ending, okay? All this family's traveling together, Abram's family, and uh, he's picked up a lot of wealth along the way. He's got a lot of cattle and things that he's traveling around the world with. And beside, and I'm going to stop right here for just a second because at the end of this service, I want you to prepare, be prepared to give, all right? Laura is going on a missions trip, and she is in her third year of master's commission in Atlanta, Georgia, with Jeannie Mayo, and I think she only lacks a couple hundred dollars being able to complete that, and I think that we can be the completion. We can be the period at the end of the sentence, so to speak, for her tonight, and so I want you to guys get ready and be a blessing not only to Darla but to Laura and uh, what she's getting ready to do, okay? So be prepared to do that, all right? All right, uh, all this family's traveling together, okay? Do you remember when you got married to that cute little thing that's sitting beside you? You were head over heels with her, all right? You thought you were just getting her. No, you got the whole family. You even got the crazy uncle that embarrasses everybody, didn't you, okay? Anyway, here comes Abram. And his clan, all of these animals, and they're traveling with family, okay? And traveling with family today is a challenge as it was back then. I remember about nine years ago traveling to Panama City, Florida with family, with seven of us in a van with all of our luggage. And you'd think a, a van would have a lot of room. But when you get everybody's luggage in there, there's not quite so, uh, so much room. Well, it was uncomfortable. And I noticed that everybody in the family, our bathroom habits are not the same. And so we had to stop every time anybody needed to go, if you know what I mean, okay? And uh, there, there's seven of us in that van, and it seemed like it took an eternity to get from Oklahoma to Panama City, Florida, okay? But that family, you can imagine what Abram was like. He had all of his extended family, all these animals, and they're trying to get wherever they're going, all right? But Genesis 13 and 5, starting with verse 5, says this. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together. For their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herders and Lot's. The Canaanites and the Perizzites were also living in the land at the time. Okay, the passage tells us of the historical events of all of this happening. There's a quarrel between Abram's herders and Lot's herders. Okay, we know all that. Now, you and I are going to look back and we're going to see if there are lessons from what they're going through at that particular time that we can apply to our lives at this time. All right? Number one, conflict is a part of life. They're having conflict. The herders from Lot and the herders from Abraham, they're having a conflict. Okay? One reason that you can know that you're alive is that you have conflict. If you've got conflict in your life, you know you're still breathing, all right? But the thing is, conflict is neutral. 
Conflict doesn't care who's right or wrong, all right? How you respond to conflict is the challenge. And when families are close, the greater the chance of conflict. Did you think about that? If you're close to your family, greater chances you're going to have some conflict. All right. There's a book that was written several years ago. It's called Caring Enough to Confront. In this book, the author says that there are five ways to confront conflict. The number one way, and the not the advisable way, is I'll get you. I'm right, you're wrong, and I'm going to get you. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands to see how many think I'm right because I already know who's right. I already know you're wrong. And this is the default position of a lot of people. Boom, I'm right, you're wrong, it's over. Number two, and it's almost the opposite. I'll give in. You're always right. I'm always wrong. I'm going to go over here in the corner, curl up in the natal, prenatal position. I'm going to eat a few worms because I deserve the degradation. The person who always give in is not always helping the relationship. That doesn't always help. Number three, I'll get out. I'm out of here. There was a couple in a church being honored for being married for 75 years. You have to be old to be married for 75 years. Okay. Got to be old to be married that long. The pastor asked them their secret for the longevity of their marriage. And the husband stepped up and answered, said, Ma and me, we decided right after we got married that if we really got into it, I mean a deep, heated argument, that what I would do is I would go out and I would sit on the porch. I would cool down. When I felt like I was cooled down enough, I'd come back in and I would start again with Ma and see if we could try and figure things out. And he said, I guess our marriage lasted so long because of all the outdoor living. I'll just get out. Number four. Let's compromise. We're starting to get to the good ones, okay? Let's compromise. You give a little, and I'll give a little, okay? And then number five, which one that I believe is the most biblical answer to conflict is this. Affirm the person and confront the issue. Affirm the person and confront the issue. I usually do it much differently. I usually confront the person and affirm the issue. Who's the idiot that left the Diet Pepsi on the end table? You're going to leave a permanent ring on that thing. It's never coming out. I assassinate a person's character over one calorie. Jesus' style's a lot different than that. Here's the biblical model that he put. John chapter 8. These real spiritual guys who are constantly trying to trip up Jesus or confronting a woman after being caught in the very act of adultery. You know, I don't really know how you catch somebody in the act of adultery unless you're pretty much a peeping Tom yourself. Got a problem with that. Nevertheless, they bring this woman and they stand her before Jesus. In John 8 and 7, it says, When they kept on questioning him, 
he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. I don't know what he wrote. It doesn't really matter. There's a lot of speculation of what he could have written there. Some people think that he was writing down the names of all of their girlfriends. (laughs) But anyway, he bent over. And he wrote in the ground, verse 9, At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones, maybe then the younger ones, until it was only Jesus left. With a woman still standing there. Verse 10, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. And Jesus declared, Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus affirms the person and confronts the issue. These guys gathered around her didn't care anything about her. I don't even think they cared that much about the sinner. It seems like we're caring more about tripping up Jesus than they do about finding her guilty. And Jesus said, guys, all right, go ahead and stone her, but only do it if you don't have any sin. They, one by one, old, young, drop their stones and walk away. Maybe when Jesus looks up, he sees an uneven circle of stones around him. And then... In the concentric rings, the inner circle is gone, but there's a larger outer circle of people that are still standing there. Jesus is the woman standing in the middle. He says to her, who are those that condemn you? And I see her personally, nervously, looking around and saying, well, they're gone. No one, sir. I picture a smile coming across Jesus' face, and he says, Me neither. Why don't you go on, but don't do this again. Genesis 13 and 8. So Abraham said to Lot, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me, or between your herders and mine. You see what he's doing here? He's affirming Lot. Let's not have any quarreling, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Hey, let's part company. If I go to the left, if you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Wow, what a master negotiator. Lot looked around and saw the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zoar was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. You see what Abram just did? He gave Lot first choice. We're close. You just choose first. So he gets to choose first. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, and Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted from him, Look around from where you are to the north and to the south, to the east and to the west. All the land you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. 
I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abram went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he pitched his tent. Number two, Abram confronts the issue by affirming Lot. Abram says to Lot, you choose first. The choices we make will make all the difference in our lives down the road. God will let you make the choices, but choose right. Your generosity with your money, your time, your insights down the road are going to be an active offense. Kyler Murray tonight is going to lead an active offense. Your choices are an active offense. Generosity sets a tone. When you have generous people in the room, it changes the atmosphere. You remember the woman who walked in the room and began to anoint Jesus with the alabaster box of anointing? He poured it out on her feet, upon his beard, upon his head, all of that, and it ran down. And what it changed in the room, her generosity changed the atmosphere completely. It was different. And when people are in a room and they are givers together, it changes the atmosphere. Oh, wow. Generosity is generational. I believe Dana's daddy passed it down to his daughter. Your parents are generous. You'll probably be generous. It's the way business is done. Generosity says you choose first. It's like the fruit of the Spirit. You have love, you've got patience, you've got kindness, you've got peace. But I like the tagline in that scripture where it says, against such there is no law. Oh, that guy over there has got too much generosity. Arrest him for something. Daughter's got too much kindness in her. Arrest her. There's no law against it. Give, give, give. Be generous with your love, your patience, your time, all of that. Against, there is so that there is no law. That guy has too much love. Throw him in jail. Not. Lot chooses his land. He gets to choose first. Abram has been generous. We're close. You go to the left, I'll go to the right. You go to the right, I'll go to the left. Whatever, it's okay with me. You just decide. Lot chooses. Real estate brokers will tell you, your cho- in your choice of purchase, the value is in three things. Number one, location. Number two, location. Number three, location. What are you saying? Well, he picked the best land in the worst neighborhood. He had bad neighbors. Number three, generosity will win the day. Abram says, you go ahead and pick first. And Genesis 14, 1 through 16, I thought I was going to read it all. But the truth of the matter, in the first several verses, you're just going to find names of kings that I can't pronounce, and you won't care after it's all over, so we're going to skip down to verse 11. Okay? The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah. These kings are coming against the place, Sodom and Gomorrah, and Lot happened to live there. These were all his neighbors, so they took Lot, and they took his 
possessions as well. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all of their food, and they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. A man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram, the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol, and Anar, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them. Pursuing them as far as Hobath, north of Damascus, he recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. Wow. That's the kind of big brother I want. Or uncle that I want in Lot's case. Number four. And I read all that to make this statement. I can fight with you. And I can fight for you. And a great theme in these passages that I've been reading to you tonight is this. Abram is always for his nephew Lot. Always. Abram has his challenges. Lot has his challenges in life. But Abram is always wanting it to work out for Lot. When Abram finds out that Lot and his family have been captured, he rallies his family to rescue Lot. I remember when I was a kid. I don't remember just exactly how old, but it was a Sunday night. And the habit for the orphans on Sunday night, Wednesday night, every night of revival, and if we could make up some other things, we were a church. One Sunday night, for whatever reason, my mom and I stayed at home. And my dad went to church. I look back on it now and I think mom and dad were fighting. And dad went on to church and she said, I don't know, okay. But we stayed home and I'm sitting there watching TV. And I just, after a while, I kind of look around and notice mom's not there. So I kind of want to know where she is. So I start walking through the house. She's not in the living room. She's not in the formal entry. Walk on down. She's not in the bathroom. She's not in my room. I walk on down a little further. She's not in her bedroom. She's not in the half bath. She's not in the guest room. So I walked to the kitchen, and we had these swinging bar doors, and I look over. She's not in the kitchen. And the first thing I can think, because I was raised on this kind of theology, rapture theology, Jesus has come, and I've been left behind. And I don't know what I had done, but I knew that I had not been living like I should probably at 5th or 6th grade, 11, 12 years old. And I don't know what degradation that I can get into at that particular time, but I must have found it. And it's probably piddly to what people can get into now, but it was probably some sort of rebelliousness, and that's what comes to my mind. I have talked back to Mom, and I'm going to hell. That's all I can think of. I'm looking around. I go outside. I walk around the house. No Mom. Car's there. I start looking for clothes that have been left behind. I'm looking, I'm thinking, then I think, oh, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll call and see if dad is at the church. Church will still be going on. So I go in, get the phone book out, yellow pages. You all know what that is? Remember that? Get them out, and I look up First Assembly of God, Yukon. 
I dial the number, and the phone begins to ring and ring and ring and ring and ring, and nobody answers the phone. I know Jesus has come back. So I decide to make one more pass through the house. I'm literally looking under beds. I'm looking in closets, and the last place you look, they are always the last place you look, aren't they? I go to the pantry, and I hear something in the pantry. And it's mom in there in the pantry, and she's praying. And I didn't open the door for whatever reason. I didn't have this great joy because I heard my mom praying. She said, oh, Lord, don't let the devil get a hold of Scott. Don't let him drag him away. Lord, I want him to be with me in heaven one of these days, so don't let him go backwards. Don't let him backslide. She was fighting for me. During everyday life, she was fighting against me, it seemed like. Is that possible? To fight against someone and then always also fight for them? Yes, that's kind of what Jesus does, isn't it? We're fighting against him all the time, you know, trying to not maybe do what he wants us to do. But yet he's still fighting for us at the same time. Don't let the enemy drag Scott away. Perhaps that prayer and the prayers of my little grandma are the ones that I'm able to stand, the reason I'm able to stand here tonight and deliver the word from heaven. But how does that work in real life, okay? Fighting, you know, for someone, fighting against them at the same time. The conflict that Jesus has with us, so to speak, is over the enemy of our soul. And it's not a physical fight. Ephesians chapter 6 says that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and wickedness in high places. Our Lord leads the charge. Our Lord is generous beyond measure. Galatians 5, God demonstrates His love for us in this while we were still sinners. Golly, I get that. I don't, I don't understand. It confuses me. I'm still a sinner, and He's fighting for me. Trying to be my own God. Trying to make my own choices. And Jesus takes the hit. I heard someone say that Christ went to the cross to set the price so high for my soul that he would never be outbid for us. Even though some never come to him, he wants you to know that the tab has already been paid for you. What do you mean? It'd be like me going down and saying at the Holiday Inn, Jim, I'm buying a room for you tonight and you never show up. Love. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Jesus leads the way. And He shows us how this is done. Matt, I want you to come up here. Have any of you ever done a trust walk? Matt, you're getting ready to do a trust walk. Okay, let me get you to do it. I need you to stand right here. And what I want you to do is I want you to face me. Okay? Put your, close your eyes and try to stand. I'm going to trust you. You, don't, you cannot open your eyes no matter when. 
during this trust walk, okay? But I'm going to speak, and I want you to follow my voice. 